welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and contributor at places like the Dispatch, Arc Digital, and elsewhere where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking or going to them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's fine, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. Those five-star ratings really help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. In this week's show, I'm going to talk through some broad thoughts that I have on the overconfidence in the election models right now for 2020, especially regarding The Economist magazines. They have a model that I'm going to go through a little bit, and then we'll cover what's happening in Portland, Oregon, hit the latest numbers on the coronavirus, and wrap up with a light item segment this week on the return of baseball. So that's the agenda for this week's show. And we will jump right in this week, starting off with the 2020 election. I mentioned, I think it was either last week or a couple weeks ago, that we were coming up on 100 days out of the election. And as of the moment that I am recording this, Sunday evening, we are 100 days out. So by the time you listen to this, probably on Monday morning, sometime around Tuesday, we're going to be 99 days or less. So you can cue the song, The Final Countdown because we are now under 100 days. So, since we're 100 days out, that means conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C., and with election modelers and analysts everywhere is beginning to set in. And if you go up into really the elite section of the elections analyst circles and all the circles that they run in, it really seems, among some of the really high and well-known ones, that the race might as well be over now. And that might be overstating it a little bit, but not that much. Specifically, The Economist is the one who has their model out. And they are claiming that right now, Donald Trump only has a 90, well, only has an 8% chance of winning the race. So Joe Biden has a 92% chance of winning right now. And that's not just today, taking in all the factors of the day, but that's period, So that's from now to the election. They expect that there's a 92% chance that Joe Biden wins. So most models, when they describe an election, so my favorite of these is Nate Silver's at 538. And if you've read or listened to me for a while, you know I've quoted him a lot on a lot of things. I relied on him pretty heavily during the impeachment. And when I was making my own projections in 2016, I relied on him real heavily. Him and Sean Trenday over at Real Clear Politics are really at top of this. Uh, But he hasn't released his model yet. But usually when a model like his, when he feeds data into it, everything shifts depending on what data goes into it. And he tries to reflect uncertainty, both from the distance of the election and as the closer you get to it and the more factors sort of get nailed down, you get, you know, less and less uncertainty. And if there's more uncertainty, and there was a wide amount of uncertainty in 2016, he will explain that to you. 
So what The Economist is saying, though, in their model, is that it's a flat 92% chance for Joe Biden because, and that's unchanging, because they've accounted for all the uncertainty, which, when you're describing a model, even 100 days out from an election, and you're saying that you've accounted for all the uncertainty, in a year like this, that's the most insane description of a model that I've ever seen or heard. And there are very, very smart people who are involved with The Economist on building this, this elections model, but it takes a very high level of hubris required to say that you've already accounted for all the uncertainties and that 100 days out, an incumbent president only has an 8% chance of winning. That is insane. And we're going to walk through a little bit why this is insane. But the first and the main point here is that they do not have a single election in American history where they can say that they know how to model how a pandemic filters into every last single factor in the race. They don't know how to model that level of uncertainty. We don't know how how to even think about how this virus is going to be two to three weeks out from now. I mean, I'm going to talk about this later in the show, about how I think we may have turned a corner, but this is really, this is week to week, we learn something new about the virus and where we are on a data front. So there is no way we know how the virus is going to pan out going into November. So, you know, many of these same pundits, and I think you can make this, I would look at what they say about Texas, because if you take Texas as an example, many of these same pundits have made considerable points of pointing out that Joe Biden is either tied or slightly ahead of Trump in Texas. Now, this is just by itself. This is a huge point because it means that Texas has become something of a purple state and is in play here. But in this race, those polls didn't start showing that distinct direction towards Biden until the coronavirus was bad in Texas. And so this is really over the last six to eight weeks when we saw a definitive shift away from Trump overall in the polls. You saw this also happen in Texas. And those polls didn't move just generically. There was a precipitating event, and it was the coronavirus. You could see it. The moment the cases started spiking, their perception and the job approval rating of Trump started tanking in Texas, which gave Joe Biden better polling there. We cannot project forward and say that in November, Texas is going to be in the exact same place that it is now. It could be that Trump's polling is worse, in which case Biden's going to widen his lead there. It could be, though... And this is probably more likely that you're going to see a radically different environment for the coronavirus. You're going to see a, a place where Texas is more than likely on a downslope. Because right now, if you look at their numbers, they look like they've kind of peaked. And so you would expect a, either a gradual trend down or, you know, things are going to plateau here and people are going to settle into a new normal. It's going to be one of those types of things. And so that's going to impact how people view Donald Trump and the 2020 election. And so... We don't know how that's going to happen. And so if we don't know what direction that's going to go, that is a high level of uncertainty in a massive state like Texas. And that's just one state. There are 50 of them. There are a lot of toss-up states. There are a lot of battleground states. And you have to account for this. And to say that you can rely on things like the economy and polling and history to get you there in a situation where we've never had this type of, this exact environment we've never had in an election in U.S. history, that's insane. 
There is no way that you can say that there is a 92% chance that Joe Biden wins based on this level of data. There's far more than just 8% uncertainty or however they want to paraphrase it. So the second part of this, because what people would do is they would respond by saying that when I would point out the uncertainty is they would say, well, the polls have been far more consistent this time around showing a Biden lead versus a Hillary Clinton lead. Now, that's fine, but Trump was close enough to Biden in both January and April in the Real Clear Politics polling averages to give him well above 50% odds of winning in the battleground states. He was within, in national polls, between close around four to five points away from Joe Biden nationally, just on a head-to-head basis. And if you just take that and you looked at the battleground states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania... Trump was at thin striking distance, usually between like he was within two points of Biden or he had a small lead in places like Wisconsin or he was tied with him in places like Michigan. It was just, it was very close. And so to pretend that that situation back then is impossible moving forward is just to accept something that we've seen plenty of movement in the past. Because when you say that they've been more consistent, they were pretty consistent in 2016, too. Yes, there were movement, but that reflected big... It wasn't The polls, again, were moving according to events. When Trump took a lead in, I believe it was the summer, that was over the story of Hillary Clinton's emails. When the polls came close again, that was because the Comey letter came out right before the election, and so it caused these dips. These things are close now, but that's only because the election has been has been you know sort of sidelined by these other major storylines. Now you could extrapolate forward and assume okay this is going to continue forward all the way through the election, or you could presume that because this country is so tribal and so polarized that it's going to drive the the race closer to a tie. And you know I fully expect Biden to perform better than Clinton. But there's little signs right now that Biden is going to outperform Clinton among key demographics, especially for him. He needs black voters in places like the Midwest. Now, right now, his plan may just be to win over more older whites that the Democrats lost in 2016, which does, in fact, help. But if he loses more of the diverse demographics that Democrats have relied on in the past, he's going to have to win much more of those white voters than they Democrats have in the past. And Trump could offset that. I think it was Ari Fleischer who was pointing out that he expects Trump to hit some, somewhere around, you know, close to 15% maybe with black voters, which would move the percentage with the Democratic Party down, which would be pretty significant. That would take him back closer to the trend lines we saw under George W. Bush instead of the awful metrics with uh, McCain and Romney. So those are some—there's nothing that's set in stone right now is the key point on this. And the last point I'm going to make on this, it goes more towards Biden on this, but we don't know if Joe Biden's strategy of hiding in the basement is a winner. And that's just the straight up truth, because the reason that this is remaining static is because Biden is trying to make sure and maintain a static part in the race by not coming out, by not doing anything. He's running what's called the front porch campaign, and that's where you just sit there and let the election come to you because the people will crave a quote-unquote return to normalcy. So you don't do anything. You try to do as little as possible. Now, this 
is not the first time this has been run. The last time it was tried was by Warren G. Harding, the Republican candidate for president, who ended up winning. He came after Woodrow Wilson, who is arguably the worst president in U.S. history. Harding won that race because the country was so sick of the extreme progressivism of the Woodrow Wilson era, which included World War I and included the League of Nations. There were a lot of really, you know, strong fascist type moves by the Wilson administration by jailing people just for their speech. He did a lot of things. You can go back and read books like Liberal Fascism, or you can read any other coverage of that era, and you'll get the feel for that. American people were sick, and they wanted a lot of that Wilsonian stuff overturned. So that gave the world Warren G. Harding, who was not he wasn't that he was you know it was a smart move for him to move to run the race that he did. It suited him because he was the only Republican nominee because he was just the most agreeable. There were a lot of factions in the Republican Party, and they couldn't agree on anyone except for Harding. This was back in the day where there were far more smoke-filled rooms. He wasn't the brightest guy. He wasn't a big idea guy, but he was the one who was able. Who was just you know the most agreeable to all the factions and ended up winning. He also ended up dying two years into his first term, which ended up giving his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, the White House. So some consider Coolidge the first and only libertarian to hold the presidency. So this is the historical parallel that Biden is lining up with. He's lining up with the guy who ended up dying in office. And I don't think behind whoever Biden ends up picking, I don't think that person's going to be a libertarian. So... It'd probably be someone who's far more woke, progressive, and extreme. So I agree overall with the Biden strategy. This is what I would advise him to do. It's what his campaign's doing. It's smart. But just because it's what is the smart thing to do does not mean it's not without weaknesses. So most notably, as I've pointed out several times, this amplifies his weaknesses. So when Trump has bad moments, they don't really matter as much for now because for him, it's just these bad moments are like flack. You can't, if you're trying, if you're the media and you're trying to lock in on something, you can't just because there's so many different things that you can get focused in on, which ended up diverting everybody's attention to all these other things. Democrats struggled with this very issue over the topic of impeachment. They all agreed he'd done something bad, but some of them thought it was something else and no one could really focus in on the one thing and no one could win over any Republicans. But for Biden, these these moments and these slip-ups matter more because he has fewer of them. And so when he has a moment and it is bad, it matters and it sticks out. And he's he's as he's hiding here, he's obviously also going to get rusty at the whole presidential part where you're having to speak and you're having to get out and, and interact with people. And he already had a kryptonite in this regard where he was always putting his foot in his mouth. And it came up time and time again during the primary and, you know, one of the things that happened this week was that Chris Wallace of Fox News, he interviewed Trump last weekend to much acclaim. And he reported today that the Biden campaign told him that Biden wasn't available for an interview at any point in time. So you have the president who's giving these interviews, and then you have Joe Biden who is refusing interviews and just isn't available. He's running for president. He's sitting in a house doing online fundraisers. He's available this is a deliberate choice not to take an interview, an interview that would unquestionably be hard because Wallace gave a hard interview to Trump as well. I get why Biden and his campaign are doing this, 
But Biden also deserves the derision for declining an interview that Trump took himself and did. And there's no fuss, even though he got attacked for his answers. And Biden, meanwhile, is running and hiding. Which is, by definition, just pure cowardice. Biden claims in his ads that he's ready on day one to take over the job, but he's not ready for an interview at any time, for a sit-down interview with Fox News' Chris Wallace. I mean, that cuts pretty hard against the front porch narrative and feeds the Trump narrative that Biden isn't capable of performing the functions of president. So that's where we are with this types of things. When Biden has these moments, they stick out and they matter more. Because what he's saying is, I don't, I don't, either I can't do this because I'm incapable of doing it, or I think it's not worth my time to answer any interview questions. And I remember in 2016 and in several points since then that the media has mocked Trump again and again for saying things, oh, well, he won't sit down for an interview. He, Trump has sat down for more interviews than just about any other president. In fact, it's sickening how many times he sits down for these, these interviews because they don't always go well. And Biden isn't capable of one. It just doesn't add up. And it doesn't look good for Biden if Trump is out here doing these things and he is not. It makes sense politically, but it still looks bad. And the other thing is we're, we're still a few weeks away from conventions. This is usually when most Americans start tuning into the races. And that's been delayed because of everyone, the coronavirus and everything else this year. As I said in a recent write-up, the time from conventions to election day is going to be crunched down this year and condensed quite a bit. Everything matters more this year. Successes and failures will get amplified in ways they were not previously because quarantine lockdowns will have everyone more focused on the elections than prior races. No one's got anything to do. They're going to be focused in on the on the election this year because that's what we've been doing so far for the entire year. Whatever everything everyone gets into, we all get to get into. The election's going to be end up being the new Tiger King for everyone. Everyone's going to be focused in on it. And I tend to think that Biden will crack if he's forced to experience the true strain of the race. But we'll see, though. Anyone who thinks these polls can't ratchet down into a really tight race or explode even further away from Trump, you know, like these these economist models are saying, that is just crazy. There is a far higher level of uncertainty than all these statisticians and modelers think. And you can take that to the bank. If 2020 has assured us of anything, it's that we have no idea what's going to happen on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis. And that is doubly true for an election. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will start in and cover the mess in Portland. All right, the mess in Portland. So... I'm partially previewing some of the points that I'm making in my Monday column at the Conservative Institute on this, but not all of them. I'm sort of able to, in a podcast format, you can always go into a little more depth on these things, and that's what I wanted to do here. So when it comes to Portland, I've really held off on talking or writing about it a lot because this Portland and some of the other places, some of these other cities where violent riots or protests are occurring, and, and I've you know stayed back because I've been watching two things on this front. First, I started watching people who I knew were on the ground in the protests and the riots, and they were filming basically nonstop. 
And so they were doing this, and they were alongside and sharing the reports of local reporters and journalists who live in these areas, specifically in Oregon. So I was looking for people who were on the ground in Portland and the journalists who were there with them. And then after that, second, what I did was I started comparing that to what was getting reported in the national media. And it became apparent pretty quickly that there was a chasm between the national narrative being pushed out by all the national outlets and then what was getting experienced by people who were on the ground reporting locally. Now, on a national level, we've seen House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's called the federal agents involved in Portland. She's called them stormtroopers. We've seen many others who've called the federal response um, fascist or compared American federal agents to the Gestapo. And you've seen you know, a large outcry for various things that have happened in Portland, mainly the federal response to what is happening there. And when the first reports came out about the unmarked agents and, you know, these vans who were arresting people and taking them to the federal courthouse and things like that, just when all that started happening, I was very concerned because in general, we should always have a very healthy skepticism of whenever the government is, you know, getting used and government powers getting used against any citizens, especially in this matter where you know protests are happening and you know it's a very divisive and fiery issue, you should be very skeptical about the government stepping in, either state, local, or federal. Uh, but as you know, as I said at the top, the national reports were not always lining up with what the local journalists and individuals on the ground were reporting. And so the main evening, and I think it's the best example because it's where the flashpoints really come in here, was July 23rd, 2020. So that was just a few days ago. This past week, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. And so that was when you had the major clash and you started seeing some of those reports coming out. And um, so what I'm going to do is uh, you've probably read or heard about things that are happening up there and you've probably seen some of the national stories. So what I'm going to do is read out a report by Portland police. So the Portland police were uninvolved that evening. They just watched what was happening, and they gave a report of what happened between the protesters and the federal agents. So Portland Portland police released a report. They saw everything, and they gave us this statement. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read that statement, and I'm going to let you decide what you think happened and whether or not this national response or this national narrative that's being pushed about North Portland is accurate. So this came out on July 23rd, and they're reporting about the previous evening on July 22nd. So, even the evening hours of July 22nd, 2020, a large group of more than a thousand people gathered on Southwest 3rd Avenue outside the Justice Center and Federal Courthouse in downtown Portland. For several hours, the group blocked traffic and vocalized in demonstration. At around 9.15 p.m., Mayor Ted Wheeler addressed the crowd outside the Justice Center. During this time, group members chanted and at some moments lit off fireworks. Around 10.30 p.m., Mayor Wheeler finished addressing the crowd and walked to the federal courthouse where he stood at the fence. 
Soon after Mayor Wheeler finished addressing the crowd, people in the group began throwing flares and other incendiaries over the fence that protects the west side of the federal courthouse. Over the next 45 minutes, people continued to throw flammable material as well as incendiary devices over the fence, eventually starting a large fire. Other people breached the fence while others kicked and shook the fence. Federal police officers exited the building and began to disperse the crowd. Around 12.24 a.m., a large animated group remained at the fence surrounding the federal courthouse. One individual in the crowd disregarded, disregarded the fence and encroached through the portico to a door of the federal courthouse where they threw an item into the building. The flaming item disappeared inside of the courthouse and federal officers exited and addressed the crowd. So that's at 1224. At 1231 a.m., Portland police declared a riot due to the violent conduct of the large group creating a grave risk of public alarm. Police issued public address announcements and told the group to leave the area, moving to the north and the west. The majority of the group did not leave. Over the next several hours, people continued to congregate near the fence outside the federal courthouse. During this time, Molotov cocktails were thrown at the federal building, along with hundreds of projectiles. There were multiple fires lit by the crowd in the area surrounding the courthouse to include the heavily wooded areas and the parks and trash receptacles on neighboring blocks. Multiple vandalisms occurred, including the fire hydrants, which were opened, wasting several hundred gallons of water into the street. At least one assault was reported. Over the next several hours, the group slowly dissipated. With the exception of the sound truck, Portland police were not present during any of the activity described. Portland police did not engage with any crowds and did not deploy any CS gas. No arrests were made by Portland police. So, that is the Portland police report on the evening in question. And that's just one night. A lot of this has continued on night after night. And there are clashes and everything. So, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others, and national outlets that ran with coverage of this event all blamed federal agents for what happened. Now, that police report does leave out what the federal agents were doing, because when they exited the building and started dispersing the crowd, that is when they started using things like tear gas and non-lethal dispersion methods. That's where you get the things like the bean bags. I'm not sure if they were using rubber bullets, but you are getting things like that where you're getting people to leave. And they were doing this because this was a direct assault on the federal courthouse building. And a general point that they make in that report, you know, a general report, well, this is in the national news, the general point that they make is that the mere presence of any federal agencies, any federal agents from any agency invites clashes with protesters. So, you know, in the New York Times or the Post or any others, when they run with that, what it allows them to do is that it excuses the actions of the anarchists who are involved, who are committing all these actions, and allows them to place all the blame and fault on the federal government. Now, I don't like the formation of the argument this way because the rioters and the anarchists involved are clearly taking advantage of the situation to attack anyone involved with the federal government. And it's clear if the federal government, which is headed by Trump, if if it cause if it's the, if Trump is the cause, and the press covers things in this way, 
what it does is that it confirms that these clashes have nothing to do with George Floyd or any other injustice documented in the last few months. These anarchists and these people, they want to clash with Trump and his administration and any official, any agent, or anyone that is they deem affiliated with him. This has nothing to do anymore with police abuse or racial injustice. These people want to see the federal government burn, and there are people of all colors involved, but there's a whole lot of white people and part of these anarchist groups who are doing the main instigating here. Now, I know on the right, it's very popular to attribute all this to Antifa, or Antifa, however you want to say it. And I totally get that urge, but they're just not a cohesive group with leadership that's coordinating all these things, at least that I've seen. Mostly what I'm just saying is a bunch of anarchists of the left. You can go back, in, especially in Oregon and, and Washington history, you see a lot of these types of people who live up there. And they are extremely violent, and they are extremely violent in this specific situation. I mean, they're firing firework mortars at police officers and agents. They're starting fires in federal buildings. They're throwing rocks and other projectiles. They're shining lasers and strobe lights into the eyes of anyone in a uniform and more. And there's videos of all of this. It's not like you're having to listen to a report. You can go and watch the videos of them doing these things. And that includes, by the way, I know it's been very, you know, in vogue to post pictures and videos of the so-called wall of moms who are there, but there are videos of those moms, so-called moms, who are joining in and tearing down the fences around the courthouse. So they also are not peaceful protesters. These are not the actions of peaceful protesters just exercising their First Amendment rights. This is far more analogous to 2014 when you had the the Clive and Bundy showdown between right-wing militia groups and the Obama administration. And those guys were also spoiling for a fight with the federal government. And they, you know, you there was there was a shootout and they got involved in all kinds of things. I want if I remember correctly, I want to say even a person even died from that. And so Obama was fully within his right to squash that nonsense too because that was over federal land. The Bureau of Land Management was involved. And the protesters in Portland are attacking a federal courthouse. These are the kinds of insurrection-style actions that you just can't be tolerated on either political side. We settled that kind of question in the Civil War. You know, you, you see, if you go back and, and you look at Michigan, and you had those, those armed protesters who were protesting just the lockdowns, you heard all the descriptions about how these were violent people, and how these were dangerous people, and... You know, Trump didn't need to encourage that type of thing. Well, these are worse people who are doing these types of things in Portland. You're seeing them cheered on and egged on by many people in the press, in the media, and in the Democratic Party. This type of thing cannot be supported. It is dangerous. But, you know, moving back to the main topic on this, if the federal agents are violating any rights, they should be held to account for that. But as the rioters escalate tactics, the feds are fully within their right, and they should use force to disperse these malcontents who are trying to take over a peaceful set of protests after George Floyd's death and bring their own reign of chaos, mayhem, and destruction. These blue state governors and mayors who let this chaos take hold are doing a disservice to themselves and the peaceful protesters who do exist because there are peaceful protesters here 
but they are being overshined by these anarchists who just want war and should go to jail. Period. These people just need to go to jail. Restoring order would allow for peaceful assembly to take place again. It would allow for more free speech to return. But none of that can happen with this mayhem going on. And all of this mess needs to be cleaned up. And the other thing here is that these kinds of events help spread the virus and sour you know, the coronavirus, and then sours people towards following any social distancing measures when they see this type of chaos on TV. The original protest had this impact. If you, I've talked about this numerous times, but if you go back, the surge in June reflected events that happened in the early part of June. So you didn't see that until about June 14 or 15. That was when numbers started going up. And that meant we were seeing data come in from the first part of June when the protests were taking place. People started disagreeing. It's not that you know, the protests were, were causing the spread. It's that people changed their habits because they saw people out in public, not wearing masks, and just ignoring all kinds of social distancing measures. So you've got to get this type of stuff under control to not just restore order, but to also keep control of the virus. So these just to stop that... And to get people to follow these instructions, you've got to end these ASAP. And, you know, we'll get about that into a little more about that in this next segment, looking in the latest on the coronavirus numbers. But you really, we really do need to emphasize that in order to control the, the virus and to restore order in these cities now and just to clean up the mess that is there now, you've got to end the protest because they are not helping anymore. And in fact, they are a detriment to the overall cause of fixing some major problems in our country that need to be fixed. But these protests are no longer helping anymore because they're turning into riots and they're allowing anarchists to reign free and just cause all kinds of destruction in their path. So that's what I think so far in Portland. It's, you know, you got to be careful with it. You got to watch more information as it comes in, focus on what locals are reporting Look for people who are on the ground, things like that. But right now, it just doesn't look good. So that's all I've got on that. We're going to take a quick break. And then after that, in the next segment, we'll look at the latest on the coronavirus. All right. As we have done every week for what it feels like forever now, we're going to go through the latest top line numbers and trend lines on the coronavirus on a national level. So we always start out with the tests. So... We have run overall 51, over 51 million tests. So we're almost at 51.5 million total tests run all time. So that's all the way from January all the way through now. Over the past week, we've run 5.6 million tests just over the past week alone. It continues to grow week in and week out. Some weeks are bigger than others. This past week, especially on a daily basis, we saw some new records set. So every day we were above 700,000 tests that were conducted. And on most days, it wasn't just 700. We were well north of 750,000 or even 800,000. We had four days that were at or near 800,000. And on one day alone, on Friday... We ran 930,000 tests in a single day, and that was just getting back results. But that is an astounding number for Friday. So we are very, very close to achieving 1 million tests in a single day very, very soon. So that's probably going to happen in the next one to three weeks. You're going to see us be able to run a million tests in a day, which is an astounding 
figure. And this is in July. I remember when I was looking at the trend lines back, I think it was in May-ish. It was probably late May when I was looking, projecting forward. At this point, we only thought we'd be running about 500,000 at best test a day. And we are at doubling that already. So that is an astounding pace from where we were when we weren't getting out any in a single day. So this is a very big development. And the other thing that's very important to note is that while we are in testing more and more, the seven-day average, if you're just looking, if you average out the numbers on a weekly basis and the positivity rate of the number of you know positives that are coming back, it is finally looking like it, it at most it's plateaued down. Or I take that back. You know, the least thing you could say about it is that it's just at a plateau. But it looks like it's finally beginning to edge down again, just slightly. So it's plateaued here for the last several weeks at around 8.5%. And this week, it finally dipped down to 8.3%. So that is just a 0.2% drop. But with us testing more and more and the positivity rate not growing, that is a very good sign because we had effectively doubled where we were when we bottomed out in June. In June, we our lowest point was 4.3%, and we effectively doubled that at one point. So we're now back to 8.3, and hopefully you see that edge down. It can be slow, but as long as that starts edging down, that shows that the infection rate that we're seeing is slowly getting trimmed down. So with all the plateauing and the testing still go up, it appears right now on the rate of tests that are coming back that we may have hit a peak with the spread of the virus. And so the cases may start dropping soon. And that is the case. So if you look at Arizona, where they've been just, you know, in a bad situation there with the number of cases that have gone up, their cases are finally going down. And that may be the case, too, when you look at places like Texas and Florida. It looks like they may have hit a peak on the number of cases coming in for them, too. So that's just new cases coming in. So that's good news there. The caveat and the bad news to that is that hospitalizations and deaths always lag that news. So we're going to see probably hospitalizations and deaths climb because you have to work out and let all that surge work through the medical system. So though national... The other thing to note here is national hospitalizations. They look like they may have peaked. We're very, very early on on that because the, there's a slight curve. If you're looking at a seven-day average, there's a slight curve at the top, just to ever hint that it might be tipping down. But it's unclear right now whether or not that's actually the case. And we're going to have to watch over the next week or so to see if that trend holds because the caveat to that slight dip is that it doesn't include really Florida or Texas because those two states are still working on transitioning their reporting on hospitals to the new HHS systems. So, you know, Health and Human Services, they issued new guidelines that they wanted all the states to follow. A lot of states have been able to put that through, and they've started reporting differently. For the most part, it hasn't really affected how you count the numbers of the cases overall, but it has impacted sometimes on a weekly basis where you'll see all this this sudden surge which is just one state dumping in all its numbers at once once it has the system system sick fixed and according to the covid tracking project texas and florida are still struggling to get that those new guidelines you know set and in their systems and it makes sense for them they're two very large states they've got a lot of people florida technically they, they've got more people in that state than new york does so it makes sense that you know these are two large states that are taking them a little more time to work through we've seen this in other states like california 
You will see the media say that something nefarious is always going on here, and that's not the case. It just takes time to get these hospitals and all these reporting guidelines lined up with everyone. So, that could lead to a large dump where you have a lot of hospitalizations surge all at once. So, that said, though, it does appear we're beginning to turn a corner nationally, especially if you factor in where the case numbers is and where testing is. It looks like you can see where this is curving back down again, and we've gone through the worst of it, at least on a national basis, in some of these states that have experienced their first wave. And so that means, if that is in fact true, that means that you know masking, social distancing, and more, all those things, they're all having an impact. And you have to point to those types of things for doing this because we know we haven't hit herd immunity yet. Even if you, you're assuming that you have to have herd immunity at a very low number, like between 20 and 30%, which I've seen some studies suggest could happen. I don't know that I necessarily trust those, but there are suggestions that's a fact. Even if you assume that, we're not close to that nationally either. So there's still ways to go there. So you have to point to the social distancing measures as being the reason that people are finally beginning to see a curve in the way the virus is spreading. So if this is a corner that is turning, we could end up seeing fewer deaths in this wave across all these states than what we wouldn't happen in New York. Now, the media should report that as good news, but right now they're just hyper-focused on boosting the record of Andrew Cuomo in New York and blasting all these red state governors. And so it's just an embarrassment the way the national journalists are covering this. And it's just, the way they're doing it, it's raw politics. And it is disgusting. It's just This is just where we are, though. This is what they've decided to do. They've decided they're going to defend Andrew Cuomo, who they all love and who is in their backyard, and they're going to blast everyone else. And you know this is what they're doing because you can compare the deaths and cases of Colorado to places like Texas and Florida because Colorado basically followed a similar plan to Texas and Florida when it came to reopening. Their numbers reflected a lot of the same thing, and the national media does not care. And that's just the way things are being covered right now. So, all these numbers are coming in, and this is where the big decisions have to get made on public schools. And as I keep saying, there's no right answer here. There's really not. There's, you, you, don't, you just can't say, oh, we're going to follow science and go with that, because there's not a scientific answer to this. You have to balance competing interests, you have to balance the impact to the community of having the school shut down, and you have to balance the disparate impact of having the weight of that decision fall on low-income and single-parent households. Because those are all the balancing factors here. You want to prevent the spread of the virus, but you also don't want your your single-parent households and your low-income households, you don't want them bearing the brunt of this where they're having to figure out what they're going to do with educating their children and also having to go to work. This has already been hard enough on them as it is. And if you're expecting them to do this for another year, you're really going to hurt these households. And there's just no way around that decision. And I envy no one involved. But eventually, you've got to pull the trigger here. I know in the county where I'm living in, they've decided to they've decided to give themselves an extra few weeks here. They've given themselves two weeks to figure out what they're going to do here. Uh, you know, if I were making the unilateral decision here, I'd probably advocate for the hybrid system, even though it's not perfect. But it's the best of all. It's the one that sucks the least. And you would heavily you know, try to encourage people to stay at home just to try to prevent the spread of the virus. But you have to have them open. That's just, 
that's just the, you know, the, the shortened end of it. You've got to have this as an option and people have to have the schools because this is how you, you cannot just take the schools are fundamental to how we have our society built. And if you take that away, you're taking away one of the key fundamental ways in which we've built our basic society. So that you've just got to have it available for all these people. And if you take it away, you're going to, you know, create all these bad outcomes for kids across the board in general, but you're going to see it more in, you're going to see, you know, the income gap, you're going to see, you know, single parent households fall behind. It's just going to be bad all around. So that's all I've got on, you know, the coronavirus this week. We're going to tune in next week. We'll talk about the hospitalizations. We'll see if there's a surge and everything. We're going to take one more quick break, and then we will get you out of here. So I've gotten really good feedback on the light item segment, and it seems like you guys like it. So we will continue it on for the foreseeable future. This week's light item, though... Baseball has returned. So as the first of the big four sports leagues in America, you have football, basketball, baseball, and hockey. Baseball is the first of them to return. I know we've had NASCAR doing stuff and golf doing stuff, but as far as team sports go, baseball is the first. And it did so this week with a much smaller schedule. They're going to only have a 60-game season. It really this the virus really impacted them the most because they weren't even able to get a season underway. So this means with this shortened season, that means it'll still wrap up around the same time. So towards the end of October, you'll have the World Series, and it may sneak over into November with depending on how long the World Series goes. But it's just good to see American sports being back where you can throw on the TV and watch something like baseball. I had games on all weekend and particularly enjoyed the Braves dropping a hammer on the Mets on Sunday. That was truly a delight to see. The biggest change, of course, even watching it on TV, is just there's a lack of fans. There's no fans in any of these stadiums, and everyone's handling this a little bit differently, So and that is both in stadiums and also the broadcasts. So I think it was Fox Sports, they had a, they had a Chicago Cubs game, and what they did was they digitally inserted fans into the stands, so if you had the camera panning around the stadium, it looks like there were fans who were actually there, so it was kind of like a video game where you're looking around and you're seeing all these people, but none of them were real, and if you look from far off, you know, so if you're just looking at, you know, like an aerial shot, it looks pretty cool because it looked like a full stadium, but... Once you've gotten to a normal view where the camera in, is behind the pitcher and you're looking towards home base, the digital fans just looked awful. Because, you know, if, a, if you had a good strikeout or you had a, you know, any type of hit, so if you had a pop, anything from a single, pop player, home run, it didn't matter. There was always a delay because the digital fans took, they, you know, they're superimposed on it to it, so they could not react in real time. So something would happen, and then the fans would react about three or four seconds after the live events. So, and even when they did that, they kept performing the same repetitive movements where, you know, it'd be like a guy sitting in a seat and he would go from resting his hand on his head, his hand and his chin together. He'd sit up, then he'd settle back and then he'd repeat. So it was exactly like a video game where people only have three or four motions that they can make. 
And you could tell, looking at the stands, that it was just the same type of person over and over again. So they didn't make any chance to show any like diversity of a fan who were in the sand. Everyone looked the same, is doing the same thing. So it was really, really disconcerting to watch that take place. Just really, really weird. And I was not a fan of that. The cool thing, though, was some other stadiums, they just dealt with it by putting cardboard cutouts of fans in the stands. And so that was probably the coolest thing, because... Some people have been sort of pictures of their pets. You know, sometimes you saw, you know, cartoons or just TV characters. Um, at one point in the Mets-Braves game, I believe it was on Saturday, someone hit a home run and it flew into the stands and it smacked a cardboard cutout of a dog just right in the face, which was hilarious to watch. I did not realize how funny that would end up being. And then you also had some people trolling each other because you had Chipper Jones, you know, retired with the Braves, he put he sent a cardboard cutout of his face to Met Stadium to sit in the fans' stands. And so that was pretty funny to see. So everyone's sort of handling this a little bit differently. Some of them are still, some of the stadiums are still running like all the the in-game stuff that you would see. So you have a PA announcer, you have video graphics going up on the scoreboard, and just the whole nine yards. So that was kind of weird because there's literally no one there but the players and whatever staff they need to run it. So the logistics of how they're handling this is, is really interesting to watch. But apart from that, the, uh, the, the extra inning rules that baseball has put into place and the designated hitter rule that's across all the leagues now, those are just dumb. I hope they go away. I hope they don't stick around because you, you, when you're starting out a runner, when you go into extra innings and you're starting them out on second base, that just makes no sense. I get that they want to end the game, but still, it's still really weird to see. So, you know, if you've been watching any of the games, you know, you think differently, you like the extra innings rule or anything like that, you know, you can reach out to me, let me know. Curious to hear your thoughts. That is all I've got for today's show, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.